0: Let me ask you this. Do, do you think less of the SEC because of AM's performance last week?
1: No, you can't think less of the SEC. Exactly. So
0: you're not going to think, but you're not going to think less of the Big Ten if they have a average week. well welcome to the 16th of September. It's Friday. We appreciate you being with us here on Always College Football. He's Mark Kubiak. I'm Greg McElroy. Please like, rate, and subscribe. We appreciate the interaction that we've had with you up to this point, whether it's on ESPN's YouTube channel, or if you're here with us via the podcast, on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out an awful lot. And tell your friends, too. We're talking about... All the games, all the teams, all the breakdowns, all the matchups, all the players that you need to know as you navigate throughout the college football Saturday and Friday in some cases. We'll get to that uh, at some point here in the very near future. But either way, lots of college football discussion here today on a Friday edition of ACF. Great game plan in store. Same thing we do every Friday. Give me five. All right. Five games. The biggest games of the weekend. And we're going to get the five games in that you don't want to miss. So without much further ado, let's not waste any time. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering what happened to my arm, I'm wearing an arm sleeve right now. For those that are not watching, they're just consuming it via the podcast. I'm wearing an arm sleeve right now. I'm soft and I'm old. All right. No, I'm not making a comeback. Like my wife is like, do you think you're going to go start playing football again? I'm like, no. I just have tennis elbow and I don't even play tennis. So I don't know how that happened, but I'm getting old and I'm trying to do with it the best I can. All right. So I'm playing hurt today. All right. That's just how much I love the game. I'm playing hurt. I'm able to do a podcast and a broadcast with one working arm. I'm just kidding. It's tennis elbow. I'll survive. But anyways, let's stop wasting time. Let's get down to it. Let's talk about it. All right. Give me five. Like you guys know, we always start this way. It's the five biggest games in our eyes of the college football weekend. We start with five. We work our way to one. Last week, by the way, in case you saw the top three or four games that we had, they were all nail biters. So we've been off to a pretty good start so far when it comes to identifying the five biggest and best games of the college football weekend. So let's kick it off with an old school rivalry. Oklahoma travels to Nebraska to renew a rivalry that we have loved for as long as I've been alive. Yes, maybe Nebraska's not as good as they once were, but still, it's Nebraska, okay? Let's start with them. Mickey Joseph now takes over. He's the interim coach, and I think big thing there is, He's played there. He's been in those players' shoes. I think he can relate with the players. Obviously, he has great rapport with the wide receiver room, which has been a pretty decent group so far for Nebraska. But I would expect a spirited effort from the Cornhuskers this weekend, especially knowing who's on the opposite side. Uh, amongst Big Ten schools, only Rutgers has had a worse record than Nebraska during Scott Frost's tenure. So maybe it's addition by subtraction. All right, we'll get to that. But a lot's changed this week for Nebraska. They made several changes on the defensive side, including tackling in practice. That's something that you don't hear every day when talking about teams in season. And they moved defensive coordinator, Eric Chinendere, to the safeties. So he is now going to be focusing exclusively on the safeties or spending more time with the safeties. So hopefully that will improve the defensive effort from nebraska all right that's definitely something that needs improvement as far as the offense is concerned nebraska's got some playmakers the ground game hasn't been much of an issue and casey thompson when he's in a groove the offense has been able to string together some pretty nice moments they've also so far this year converted on 60 percent of their third down conversions anthony grant is the first nebraska back since 1950 to rush for a hundred yards in the first three games of the season. thought that was an interesting stat, especially thinking about all the amazing backs that Nebraska's had in their heyday in the 90s and obviously in the 2000s, early in the 2000s too. So this is an offense that is not an issue. However, defensively, that's where they've had major problems. They're allowing a touchdown on 32% of their opponent's drives. Not a very good number, okay? That is 107th in college football, and they have not done a great job against really anybody for the most part defensively, including most recently against Georgia Southern. Uh, Gave up a million yards, a million points, gave up the drive at the end that ultimately led to them losing the game. So hopefully with the shuffling that they've done defensively, you'll get a better effort from that group as a whole. Oklahoma, conversely, we haven't talked as much about them, mostly because they haven't really at this point been challenged they haven't tried to do a whole lot you try to get a sense of who they are it's been fairly vanilla but for the most part there's some positive takeaways let's start with their offense in the second half that's last week they kind of took a little while to get going but in the second half man they poured it on I mean they really really impressive performance there in the second half Dylan Gabriel looked more comfortable in the second half last week than he really did at any point in the first six quarters if he can continue to find opportunities downfield like he did Against Kent State and they can carry over some of that momentum that was built up in the final 30 minutes. This will be a really tall order for Nebraska. Nebraska, as we know, has not been a team that's been great as far as the downfield passing attack is concerned. They better get that figured out and figured out quickly because Gabriel will stretch the field and even though he hasn't been forced to take a ton of chances. He might, in this case, come into the game feeling a little bit more aggressive. I know if I were in in his shoes, I'd be trying to throw it over their heads. Because so far, Nebraska has been susceptible on the deep field throws. Nebraska, or excuse me, Oklahoma, one of five teams in the Power Five that is not forced to turnover. That is something that is somewhat significant. Nebraska, conversely, has turned it over five times. In the first three games, they didn't turn it over against Georgia Southern, ironically enough, but they made up for it with 10 penalties. So this team has shot themselves in the foot an awful lot. Can Oklahoma finally get going from a turnover standpoint? Because that, I know, is going to be a huge part of their defense moving forward under first-year head coach Brent Venables. And then defensively, they've been great on the ground. They're allowing just four yards a play. That's 14th in the FBS and are allowing just 2.3 yards per rush. That's 18th in the FBS. So Oklahoma's defense, you're already seeing signs of growth and progress under Brent Venables. I think this game will come down to the wire. I lean Oklahoma, but I expect it to be close.
1: I want to go back to that tackling and practice for Nebraska, Greg. Have you ever heard of that before? I mean, we don't normally see coaches get fired three weeks into the season. Have you heard of kind of just resetting and going back to camp like this?
0: Desperate times
1: call for desperate measures.
0: <laughs> They've been. Last week was a putrid effort defensively. I don't know how else to describe it. Credit to George Southern; they were great, made a lot of plays. But either way, this is Nebraska, and they have talented playmakers on the defense, including a couple guys up front that can get after you. So uh, I would anticipate them being better this week, but you still can't give up big plays. And at this point, I haven't seen anything to suggest that the big plays. Uh, are going to come to an end. going to be a tough matchup, but based on how Nebraska's played, think about how they've played in the last couple years. Ohio State lost by nine. Michigan lost by three. Oklahoma last year lost by seven. Like, they've lost close games. Uh, I don't expect them to win this game. I think that would be a difficult, probably too much to ask, but I would expect a significant uptick in the effort, and I would also anticipate a fairly decent performance
1: under the circumstances of their head coach being fired. Let's move on to game. All right, one more four. question on this game. Wait, wait, one more question on this game because I'm curious. A lot of people have said Oklahoma hasn't done anything to kind of, you know, hey, they're the number 6 team in the country, but what have they done? They've beaten a couple of average teams. They've done it, you know, convincingly, but maybe not to the liking of our uh, of our eyes. So if they win this game convincingly, are they going to get the credit or are people going to say, well, you know, Nebraska lost Scott Frost and, you know, we're all hoping it was going to be a good game. And let's right, I get really where you're going Oklahoma with this, and-
0: but like ultimately they Oklahoma hasn't had to be great yet, like we, until they're forced to be great. um a la against maybe Kansas State next week. It might not even require. I don't think anyone, if Oklahoma wins the game close or if they win the game big, we're not going to necessarily come away from this saying, well, you know, that was all I needed to see from Oklahoma to know that they're a different team under Brent Venables. No, I think it's going to come in the weeks to come because I believe that the Big 12 as a whole is collectively better. Kansas State to me is better. Kansas is better. Texas Tech is dangerous. West Virginia, albeit 0-2, I think they can be dangerous at times. I think Oklahoma State's good. Texas last week clearly proved they're pretty good. Baylor, I know they lost last week, but that's still a sound group defensively. So collectively, the Big 12 is really good. So regardless of the outcome of this game, assuming Oklahoma wins the game, I think they will. Like I said, I think it'll be close, but I think they'll win the game. Uh, I think we'll come away from it feeling pretty good about Oklahoma, but ultimately, uh, we're going to learn a whole lot more here in the weeks to come. If they can continue to play at a high level against the quality teams that they'll see in the Big Twelve. All right, moving on to game number two. Spend eight minutes on Oklahoma and Nebraska. That's a heavy lift, but don't worry. Only nine more games to go as far as our breakdowns are concerned. BYU travels to Oregon. Let's start with BYU. Jaron Hall has been incredible at quarterback. Thrown for five twenty-two, three touchdowns, just one interception. Two t- two games. Chase Roberts has emerged now. They've downed Puka Nakua. They're down Gunnar Romney at wide receiver. No problem. In steps Chase Rod Roberts, who I thought did a miraculously good job last week uh, in stepping into that role. 11 catches for 163 yards through the first couple weeks of the season. He's a name to remember. And the offensive line, for the most part, against a quality, quality Baylor defensive front, thought they did a pretty decent job. They didn't allow a ton of pressure. Didn't allow a ton of guys to penetrate. And not that they were necessarily mauling Baylor at any point. It was a solid effort across the board. This, however, I think is going to be more about Oregon. We know who BYU is. I know what to expect from BYU. But with Oregon so far in the first two performances, it's been Jekyll and Hyde. You're going to say, Greg, they played the best team in America in Georgia. They played Eastern Washington. Fine. But Eastern Washington's rock solid FCS team, or at least they have been in recent years. But they came out and looked pretty dominant. Granted, should against the competition that they were playing against. But a couple of things stuck out to me in their performance last week. Terrence Ferguson and Troy Franklin. It starts with them. Those two guys in deep rooms, respectively, at tight end and at wide receiver, they've clearly emerged to the forefront. Ferguson finished last week with a couple touchdowns on three catches and was by far, I think, the top option in a tight end room. And Bo Nix needs to look in that direction, I think, more often as he's playing against a team that likes to use big personnel, likes to stop the run. Tight ends can be very effective against defenses like, BYU. And then outside, Franklin had a career day last week. You're going to say, well, who is it against? Fine. It's still a career day. 10 catches, 84 yards. He clearly is starting to emerge as a potential go-to guy in the passing game. I love the four-headed monster that they've created at running back. I think Marquise Irving might be the best option based on what I saw last week, but it's not to be outdone. Maybe it's Byron Cardwell this week. Maybe it's Sean Dollars this week. Maybe it's Noah Whittington this week. I'm not really sure. All I know is they can go four deep at that position. And last week, if you look at Bo Nix, and this offense is going to kind of go as Bo Nix goes, it was a career day. Threw for five touchdowns, completed 28 of 33. I want to look just briefly at the 33 and the 28 numbers. There were a couple plays in there that he was kind of on the fortunate side. You look at the Terrence Ferguson's second touchdown of the day, where the ball kind of knocked off a defender into his hands for the touchdown. And he nearly had one intercepted, if not for Chase Cota that went over there and broke it up. That could have been an interception too. So with Bo Nix, you have the great moments, but you also have the head-shaking moments as well. You cannot have those head-shaking moments against BYU. And let's look back at Bo Nix's career against ranked competition. All right, against top 25 players. He is 6-12 as a starter, completing just 57% of his passes with a 15-14 to to touchdown-to-interception ratio. He's also been sacked 31 times against top 25 teams. However, he dominates unranked opponents. He's 16-2 in his career, 64% completion. His yards per attempt goes from 5.9 to 7.9, so he's a little bit better when pushing the ball down the field His touchdown-to-interception ratio, this is jaw-dropping, 29-4, to up from 15-14 to against top 25 teams. So clearly with Bo Nix, he has not, at least at this point of his career, been anywhere near as good against top 25 teams as he is against subpar competition. Well, guess where BYU is? They're in the top 25. Bo Nix is going to have to be at his best. And then the other thing that's working against Oregon, they've dropped their last four games against AP-ranked competition by a combined score, I might add, 172 to 52. That's Oregon's worst scoring margin in a four-game span against ranked teams in more than 35 years. All right. They have, however, won their last 20 games in Autzen Stadium. So maybe the home field advantage will give them a little something. I actually lean Oregon, shockingly, in this spot. BYU is a team that's after my own heart. They're physical, they're sound. I love their quarterback. I think they have players that play incredibly hard, regardless of the circumstances of the game. I think Oregon just has a little bit more talent and a little bit more speed. I think that speed will come to the forefront. And if Bo Nix can avoid the major mistake, they will be in pretty good shape in the friendly confines of Autzen Field. Moving on next to game number three, Penn State traveling to Auburn. Auburn welcomes in a Big Ten opponent to the Plains. They're Jordan-Hare. They've played Big Ten opponents in Montgomery, but never in Jordan-Hare for the first time in program history. Let's talk quickly about Penn State's offense because I think that's going to be a key point in the game. Sean Clifford last year against Auburn played really, really well. Threw for 280, a couple touchdowns. They had a difficult time Auburn did getting to Penn State last year. If you remember, Penn State's offensive line to me is one of their liabilities. I'm not sure they're great up front, and I'm not sure they'll be able to protect Clifford because I love Auburn's defensive front. There's a lot of things I don't love about Auburn, but I love their defensive front. Well, last year, similar guys along the defensive front. Sean Clifford had 3.24 seconds to first pressure throughout the game Meaning that offensive line against a quality defensive front did a really good job. All right. Last year, Auburn just could not get home. They also didn't record a sack in the game. Now you couple that with the fact that the offensive line held up quite well last year to the fact that they now have broken their streak without a 100 yard rusher. It was 17 straight games where. Penn State had not had a 100-yard rusher. Not only did they break that streak last week, but Nicholas Singleton went for 179 on 10 touches. So they clearly have an unbelievable tandem of running backs. Catron and Nick Singleton have a chance, I think, to be among the best one-two punches, not just in the Big Ten, but maybe in all of college football by season's end. So it'll be very difficult, I think, for Auburn's defense to keep those guys in check. As far as Auburn's offense is concerned, T.J. Finley and Robbie Ashford, they've been kind of going about it in different ways. T.J. Finley is the starter. Robbie Ashford is the change of pace guy. Both guys have had difficult times being good in the pocket, staying in the pocket, living in the pocket, and delivering the football. Now, I thought the light went on last week for T.J. Finley. They're in the second half of that game against San Jose State. He looked much more comfortable, made a few throws that he had not made at any point in the first six quarters of the season. Robbie Ashford, people around Auburn rave about this guy's athleticism. I'm not sure he's quite ready to be the full down in down out starter just yet. He's a great athlete and a great piece to use in an offense that can use explosiveness. But at this point, I'm not sure the processing is there just yet. I'm not sure the defense diagnosis is just there is there just yet. But it's a work in progress, and I've liked what I've seen up to this point. We all know, though, where this Auburn offense is going to lean on. Auburn's offense is going to run the football. Jarquez Hunter's terrific, but Tank Bigsby is the guy that makes this thing go. Right now, they're third in the SEC, third in the SEC with 247 yards per game on the ground. Penn State, conversely, has only allowed 80 yards per game. It's a pretty good number. So it's strength versus strength if you look at it from a statistical standpoint. The problem is Penn State, and you guys remember this, we talked about it with how Purdue managed the game down the stretch a couple weeks ago. They wouldn't run the football. Purdue almost looks at handing the ball off like it's a sign of weakness. They were throwing the ball with six minutes and two minutes left in the game. It's four-minute offense, yet they're still throwing it. So maybe Penn State's numbers are slightly inflated. Because they haven't played against a team that's really going to try to establish the ground and pound attack and really try to establish the rushing game defensively. I like the upset here. I think Auburn gets it done at home against Penn State. Sean Clifford's been smart. Auburn has yet to force a turnover. Talked about that a second ago with Oklahoma. Auburn's also one of those five power five teams that has yet to force a turnover. But either way, I think Auburn in the friendly confines of Jordan Hare. It's a really difficult place to play. I think they'll be able to run the ball off tackle, and I think they'll do enough with their boot action game, getting guys, hey, fake it to the running back off tackle, boot it around, throw it to John Samuel Shanker in the flat, throw it to receiver crossing away, because if I know this Penn State defense, their strength is in the back end, they're going to play man coverage. Well, you can beat man coverage if you force that guy to run with receivers all the way across the field off of play action. So I think Auburn actually gets it done in what should be one of the best games of the weekend. Let's go to game number two. Michigan State travels to Washington. This game is very intriguing to me. Historical significance in this one. Michigan State has lost 12 road games against Pac-12 competition. 12 straight road games against Pac-12 competition. Most recently was a three-point loss on the road at Arizona State that was back in 2018. The Spartans' last road win against a Pac-12 team came in the year that my father was born, in 1957, that was against Cal. So it's been a while since Sparty's gone west and left with a victory. Let's talk quickly about Michigan State's offense. Peyton Thorne has had some struggles here are these first couple weeks of the season, especially on play-action passing. All right, Numbers were pretty good against Western Michigan, 8-12, uh, three touchdowns, but those that watched the game will look beyond the numbers and say, man, it really wasn't that crisp. I think there's room for growth as far as the play-action passing game is concerned. And then, conversely, it carried over into the following week against Akron. He was just one of six on play-action passes. He's going to have to be better on those moving forward as the competition gets a little better as well because look at how they're running the football. Right now, the way they're running the football, it's off the chart. It's good. Jalen Berger and Jerick Broussard are as advertised. The two, Berger and Broussard, so looking at the numbers respectively, Berger's got 33 carries. Broussard's got 25. Berger's got 227 yards rushing. Broussard's got 135. Berger's averaging nearly seven yards per carry. Broussard's averaging five and a half. Four touchdowns, two touchdowns for Berger and Broussard, respectively. That is a really good one-two punch at running back. And for those of you, and get in line, I was there too. I was concerned about Michigan State potentially, at least after last season, replicating the success that Kenneth Walker provided them. I'm no longer concerned. They have a dynamic one-two punch and should be able to lean heavily on those guys, even as the competition strengthens moving forward against Washington and Heading into Big Ten play. Michigan State's defense, however, looks pretty dang good so far. They've forced six turnovers. They've been able to get after the quarterback. They lead the country right now with 12 sacks. That's the first, that's the most in two game stretch since 2007 for Sparty. So I've been pretty impressed with the growth I've seen defensively. Right now, they're averaging less than seven yards a game, they're averaging less than 285 yards given up. The pressure percentages are increased. They're getting home and providing pressure on nearly one third of the dropbacks that they're going against. They got a ton of sacks and they forced a bunch of turnovers. I think a big reason you look at Jacoby Windman, he is an excellent piece there for this Spartans defense. He was an amazing, amazing performer in the last two weeks, been the big 10 defensive player of the week twice. All right. What does that tell you? He currently leads the FBS with five and a half sacks and three forced fumbles. So last year, And really throughout the course of his time at UNLV, that's where he transferred over from, played 30 games, only had 12 sacks. Well, he's halfway there in the first two games in a Spartans uniform. So keep an eye on him. He is a major difference maker off the edge. He's going to have to be disruptive, too, because right now Washington's offense is cooking with gas. And we all know the issues that Michigan State had last year against the pass. Well, it's not a place where I want to be weak right now. Michael Penix, if you forgot that name, he is now at Washington and has been outstanding. He leads the Pac-12 in numerous passing categories, and he's already beaten Michigan State. Granted, it was 2020. It was a couple years ago, but he has beaten Michigan State in his career. He's averaging over 300 yards a game and completing over 72% of his passes. He's first in the Pac-12 in yards at 682. He's tied for first in passing touchdowns with six. He's first... And 20-plus yard completions, that's 11. He has 11 of those. 20-plus yard completions. He's got 11 of those through two games. That's pretty dang impressive. And 31 of his passes have been first downs. That's first as well in the Pac-12. So Penix is off to a beautiful start in that new destination up there in Seattle for Kalen DeBoer. They obviously overlapped back in 2019 when Kalen DeBoer was the offensive coordinator at Indiana. So I like what I've seen so far from Washington. To be honest with you, both these teams come into this game with legitimate question marks. I like what I've seen from both, but I like the home field better and I like the fact that Penn that Michigan State, excuse me, has not won against a Pac-12 team since 1957. Now they have made a knack of playing games very very close and winning difficult games when they were an underdog last year. Short underdog again this week, I'm riding with the Huskies. I have not seen anyone challenge Michigan State's defense downfield just yet. I know Pennix and company will, and I think they might be able to find just enough success to pull out the upset, if you will, at home against Sparty. Moving forward to our game of the week, it's Miami traveling to Texas A&M. This game lost a little buzz, but maybe it created a little bit of intrigue too because of Texas a and performance last weekend. Let's start with Miami. This has been a team that has long prided themselves on creating turnovers. But in 2021, they couldn't do it. Mario Cristobal comes in and says, we're getting rid of the turnover chain. You guys only forced 11 turnovers last year. That was 118th in the FBS. No more. No more turnover chain. Well, they also have already found an ability to flip the switch. They've been good at turning people over so far this year. You're going to say, well, it's against who? Southern Miss and Bethune-Cookman. Fine. Win's a win. And even though it was a little bit lethargic last week, so so were several others. More on one in a minute that was extremely lethargic lost the game. So they took care of business, did what they need to do. Miami so far this year has been much better about controlling the clock. Much was made last week about Appalachian State having the ball for nearly 42 minutes in the ball game to Texas A&M's 18 minutes in the ball game. That eventually took its toll on a defense that played pretty good for a vast majority of the game. Can Miami continue to churn out time of possession like that, inevitably leading to body blows for the Yagi defense? And can they stay on the field long enough to make fatigue a factor there in the third and fourth quarter? Van Dyke, so far at quarterback for Miami, somewhat pedestrian as far as the numbers are concerned, not necessarily blowing people away with the numbers that you're getting, but it feels like it's a matter of time. Really dating back to last year, he's been one of the better quarterbacks in college football as far as creating big plays downfield. I have a feeling that they're going to take some shots in this game as well because of how aggressive Texas A&M will likely be in the secondary. That's going to be huge. Henry Parrish, transfer from Ole Miss, has been outstanding in the first couple of weeks for Miami. So it'll be interesting to see if their offensive line can hold up. It'll be interesting to see if they can control the line of scrimmage. And it'll also be interesting to see if they can create a couple big plays downfield because that might be what they need to do in order to pull off the victory in a hostile environment. It's going to be really interesting, too. Remember last year, Miami, Miami Diaz at that point was the head coach, defensive coordinator. Well, now Kevin Steele is down there. Will he ramp up the pressure? Will he bring the heat? Miami and Kevin Steele for the most part, not crazy blitz team, not a crazy pressure team. Maybe they will when they move forward against a team like Texas A&M that has a little bit of an identity crisis offensively. That'll be an interesting thing that I'll be looking forward to. And then for A&M, it's not often that you see an AP top team, top 10 team lose the way they lost last week. Texas A&M became the first AP top 10 SEC team to lose to a unranked group of five team since number eight Arkansas Lost to Louisiana Monroe back in 2012. We all know what happened in 2012 to Arkansas. The wheels came off and it got really, really ugly. Let's hope that's not the case for the AM Aggies. Their offense so far has been the issue. They're averaging six and a half yards per play, which puts them at 42nd in college football but they haven't really been all that efficient on the ground. Everyone made a huge deal about Devon A. Chain and how this guy's going to be a home run hitter. He's got unbelievable speed, but can he churn out the hard yardage between the tackles? That's where AM has really made a lot of hay in recent years. Spiller, albeit maybe not crazy top-end speed, he was going to earn yardage, and he was going to put his shoulder down and impose his will on a tackling defender. I'm not sure... If A chains that guy right now, you get him in space, he's a problem. But they haven't done a good enough job of getting him in space, at least up to this point. The other thing, I've been pretty concerned about Haynes King's accuracy going against man coverage. Miami is a man coverage team at their core. Will they be that again this week? We'll find out. But so far, Haynes King's completed just 56% of his passes. With three interceptions in his career against man coverage, remember he's only started. Well, he started four games, but so he's really only played three because he got hurt in the Colorado game last year. If things are starting to go a little bit sideways for Texas A&M offensively, do not be surprised if there's a quick hook as it pertains to Haynes King, and they go with the more experienced Max Johnson, who, while at times has looked subpar in an LSU uniform. He has also at times looked outstanding as the starting quarterback for LSU. So it'll be really interesting if the offense sputters, how long of a leash does Haynes King have in this game? I'll be fascinated to see if they decide to make a quarterback change. But either way, AM's defense has came to play the last couple of weeks. The offense has not. They got to get things going this week, and I think they do. If you look at Miami, if you look at AM, there is no justifiable reason based on last week's performance for AM to be a favorite. There's just not. And yet they are. I don't love AM, but I think they win a close one. I think it'll be extremely physical. And ultimately, the difference is the home field. Kyle Field will be rocking. It'll be going absolutely crazy. Eight o'clock kickoff there locally in college station. I think people will have a little energy, <laughs> if you will, when they fill into the crowd and when they fill into the stands there in Aggieland. I think a gets back on track. This is an immature football team that really plays to the standard of the competition. Last week, they lowered their standard to play against App State and got beat. I think they'll raise their standard this week, play well against a better Miami team, and somehow find a way to scratch out a victory.
1: Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza, better because it has to be.
0: All right, now for Gimme Five, round two. These are the five games you don't want to miss. Let's start with number five, Texas Tech traveling to NC State. Texas Tech's averaging 48 yard uh, points per game and over 530 yards per game. Those numbers rank in the top 15 offensively in all of college football. NC State's defense, meanwhile, has been outstanding, allowing under 12, y- 12 points per game and under 270 yards per game. Donovan Smith, I think, is the key there for Texas Tech being able to generate some things offensively. While he isn't as polished, perhaps, as maybe a Tyler Shuck, he has game-breaking ability to be able to create with his legs and be able to extend plays and make plays off schedule. I love what I've seen from I don't like the interceptions. <laughs> he's got three. <laughs> but either way, I love what I've seen from Donovan Smith so far up to this point. He's given his team a chance. and He's going to have to make some serious plays against a really good NC State defense. If you look at NC State's offense, NC State has allowed pressure very little. Very little. Devin Leary, when facing pressure, is just 2 of 11 with 58 yards and a touchdown this season. Well, Texas Tech, they're getting pressure on nearly half their opponent's snaps. It's pretty impressive. The third highest rate in the country right now with the pressure that they're able to create. I love this matchup. Great offense in Texas Tech. Great defense in NC State. Solid defense in Texas Tech. Solid offense in NC State. I lean NC State in this game, but have a feeling it might be close. This might be one of my favorite games of the weekend. No one's talking about it. That's why I love it. (laughs) That's why we're here, right? SMU and Rhett Lashley traveling to Maryland. If you like offense, this is probably the game for you. It might be a shootout. Now, Maryland's defense has not faced a quarterback like Tanner Mordecai. They gave up nearly 300 yards last week. Granted, some of it was garbage time, but it was against a third-string quarterback and a fourth-string quarterback for the Charlotte 49ers. They haven't seen anything quite like this. And Mordecai doesn't do it alone. Velton Gardner had 100 yards rushing on just 11 attempts. TJ McDaniel last week, 96 yards on and two touchdowns as well. This is a pretty good, dynamic, balanced offense with tempo and, that Rhett Lashley wants to run. Don't forget Rasheed Rice, too, who leads the SMU Mustangs right now and what he can do through the year. Had 132 yards last week. So excited to see what we've seen from them. This seems to be a theme, by the way. Maryland, along with Auburn, along with Oklahoma, one of five power five teams that is yet to force a turnover this year. Do you want me to name the other two? You might be surprised. Alabama and Ohio State. Crazy, right? I wouldn't have thought that either. Either way, five power... Oh, Notre Dame, by the way, hasn't hasn't forced one either, but not in the power five. They're an independent. Gotcha. Uh, All right, you look at it, though. I think it's great offense there going against a solid defense. I think Maryland's defense is underappreciated, but they haven't really been tested just yet. So this will be by far the biggest test they've faced this season. SMU's defense against Maryland's offense. SMU defense has been outstanding so far this year. The past defense only allowed North Texas and Lamar to combine for 43% completion rate. That's great. That's awesome. The problem is it's North Texas and Lamar. Obviously, a big step up in competition this week with Talia Baloa. He loves to push the ball down the field. We're not, we're not breaking any news there. He averaged 11 yards per attempt. He wants to stretch the field, and that's what he does. And if you look at what he did, I mean, he's got a good connection with Jacob Copeland, the transfer from Florida Talia last week, 27 to 31, 391 with four touchdowns and a pick. 27 to 31 is cooking, right? That is cooking. And like I said, Copeland feels like he's kind of carving out a nice niche for himself as a reliable and dependable target alongside Jay Sean Jones, who we know is real deal. So I look at this game. I think it's going to be a phenomenal game of back and forth. To be honest with you, as good as Talia has been at times, I love Tanner Mordecai. I think they go up there and steal one on the road at Maryland because I don't think that Maryland's going to force a turnover. Meanwhile, I think SMU will. SMU wins the turnover battle. They ultimately win the shootout. This is going to be one of the best games of the weekend. Let's go next to the boot. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'll be on the call. So the fact that I made this number three and our don't want to miss this game of the week, just tells you how unbiased I am. I could promote our own game, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just telling you, there's other games that are intriguing to me. Either way, Mississippi State at LSU always has to be a high priority if you love college football. These two teams hate each other, right it's a great, great, great physical matchup. And the last time these two teams played in Baton Rouge was Mike Leach's first go at it as the Mississippi State head coach. We all know what happened. KJ Costello threw for 623. And beat the defending national champions in the 2020 season opener. Well, KJ Costello's not there anymore. Uh, neither is Ed Ogeron. Neither is Bo Pelini, I might add. Who was the defensive coordinator? That day, Nebraska fans rejoice. Bo Pelini got fired, I think, after that game. I can't recall exactly when it was, but it didn't take long. That's for sure. Mississippi State's offense going against LSU's defense. Will Rogers has been outstanding. So far in the first couple of games of the season, and it's gone against people say, "Well, Arizona's not very good." Memphis, really I think they're both okay. I mean, watching it back, both okay. Shockingly, Mike Leach, if you look at last week's tape, Mississippi State ran the ball or had called runs on eleven of their first thir- fifteen snaps. Tell me a time in Mike Leach's history where he's run the ball on nearly a two-thirds clip in the first fifteen plays of the game. I can tell you this as a person that grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth and was at one point committed to Texas Tech. That has never happened. All right, (laughs) At one point was committed to Mike Leach. That has never happened. He has never handed it off on a two-thirds clip in the first 15 plays of the game, ever. But it's exactly what they did. LSU, meanwhile, they have done a good job enforcing turnovers or... If you want to count the Florida state fumble at the goal line as a forced turnover, so be it, but they have been a good job in taking advantage when the ball's been on the ground or being ball hawking. Granted, they made a bunch of plays last week against Southern and it's a difficult team, difficult game, difficult team, difficult tape to kind of take a lot from, but either way they played well. They did what they had to do. They didn't mess around and they got out to a 37, nothing lead at the end of the first quarter. It was 44, nothing like blink twice there in the first quarter. And, in second quarter, and it was it was a runaway. Either way, uh, the big news, I think, for LSU, B.J. Ojolari, he's back. Had a targeting, missed the first half of last week's game. Either way, he's going to have to be big. Mississippi State, I still think, is a bit of a work in progress along the offensive line. If B.J. Ojolari can come off the edge and provide consistent pressure, that could be significant. He had seven sacks last year. Mississippi State's defense gets LSU's offense. Jaden Daniels played just five drives last week, but... He now has led LSU on eight consecutive touchdown drives. It's pretty good. Dating all the way back to what they did starting in the third quarter against Florida State. Kayshawn Booty was targeted five times last week. We all know know, what transpired with him against Florida State. He was frustrated, visibly frustrated. Well, the first five plays for LSU were designed to go in his direction. I would also... Told you earlier in the week, go watch the way he reacted when Jaden Daniels scored the first touchdown. He was wide open in the back of the end zone. He was the first guy to celebrate with Jaden Daniels. As opposed to pouting and throwing a fit, he ran over there, celebrated with his teammate. It appears like number seven for LSU is in the corner, expecting to continue to be a big factor in this game. And then when you look at Mississippi State's defense, their strength is in their complexity. They are very difficult to get a read on. They do an amazing job of mixing pressures, mixing looks, mixing coverages. And if you look at Zach Arnett, defensive coordinator, he will throw the kitchen sink at you. It doesn't matter. There's no really rhyme or reason. I've always called it, and this is a positive term. There's not really a ton of tendencies. There's not really a ton of tells. Uh, Tyrus Wheat is excellent, number two. You got to account for him. He'll move around. He'll rush the passer on the edge. He'll rush the passer internally. He's the guy that you really got to account for. They have good corners. They have good, solid inside linebacker play. So they're really, really good, I think, defensively. But man, they're difficult to prepare for because they do so many things. So many things. If I were playing against them, I would pull my hair out because I'm like, what is coming now? It's like a grab bag. It's like Zach Arnett sits up there with a big old Santa Claus chest of toys and play calls. He just reaches in there and says, oh, I like this one. Let's go. Call this. Blitz off the edge. All right, let's try again. Call this drop eight. It's like, what? How? Do, I don't know what this guy's doing. He's unbelievable. So I think it's really difficult to prepare for them. One more minor tidbit in the game. The third phase, special teams. LSU has really struggled on special teams this year. It got them beaten week one. Two drop punts, two blocked kicks. Well, they are 128 out of 131 in the FBS right now in special teams efficiency. There's only three teams that went worse than LSU in special teams. That's UCLA, Appalachian State, and Stanford. All three of those teams have allowed a return touchdown this year. So LSU needs to clean things up in the third phase, going against better competition this week against Mississippi State. I'm calling it, so I'll make a prognostication. Either way, I think it's going to be a heck of a game down there. Six o'clock Eastern, that'll be on ESPN. Let's go to game number two, Fresno State at USC. You're going to say, Greg, Fresno State, they just lost last week to Oregon State. Have you seen USC? They cannot be stopped. I get that. But part of the reason why I'm looking forward to this game is because I'm looking forward to the Reggie Bush highlights from 2005. All right, Because you know there's going to be a bunch of those. We all remember what he did back in the 2005 season en route to a Heisman Trophy. I know they took it from him. I don't care. He's a Heisman Trophy winner in my eyes. So he did it that night against Fresno State. It was a thing of beauty. Remember the stop start on the left sideline? It's unbelievable. The guy was one of the best college football players of all time. Reason why I love this game, it's the best quarterback matchup of the weekend. You're going to say, what? It is. Caleb Williams, with what he's currently doing at USC, love what they did last week against Stanford. Short throw, short throw, big throw down the left sideline. Short throw, short throw, short throw, intermediate throw. Big post over the top. Like They are really mixing it up offensively. I think Travis Dye's been outstanding Great back for them, exactly what they need, can contribute in a bunch of different ways. Very impactful for this offense. Caleb Williams is in a great rhythm right now, really seeing the field beautifully. I think he's done a really good job of developing rapport with what might be the best receiver group in college football. You can make that case. Addison's been awesome, Williams' been great. They are really dynamic offensively. Meanwhile, on the other side, I don't need to tell you that much about USC. We've talked about them all offseason. You know they're great. I know they're great. Biggest takeaway for me with USC is actually just how clean things look as they operate. Like they can mix tempo. I think the offensive line looks pretty good up to this point. I think they've done a pretty good job in being able to mix in some RPOs. And I think clearly Caleb Williams has a great feel for what they're doing offensively, considering how many reps he got last year at Oklahoma. Love USC. What you probably don't know is just how incredibly good Jake Hayner is for Fresno State. If you've never watched this kid, watch him. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. This guy is an absolute grinder. We'll throw it over the middle. We'll throw it down the field. He's extremely accurate. When you look at it, you turn it on, you're going to say, well, he's not very big. Yeah, he's not. He's a little undersized. I love this kid. You need to watch him. You need to study him. He's got a good back in the backfield alongside him in Mims. They are very, very good offensively. Jeff Tedford back at Fresno State. Obviously a great offensive mind. They came up short last week. They didn't have the personnel to contend. I don't know if they'll have the personnel to contend this week. Even though Vegas right now, it's steaming in favor of Fresno State. A lot of people think they're going to keep it close. I wouldn't be shocked if they did. I think Fresno State's better than Stanford. This will be the biggest test that USC has had up to this point. Why do I love it? Why is it number two? I'm a quarterback. I love quarterbacks. I love Caleb Williams. I love Jake Hayner. Must watch television when Fresno kicks it off against SC. Game number one in the five games you don't want to miss. Purdue at Syracuse. You're going to think, what? All right. Well, people are chopping up the Syracuse secondary right now. Might not be a ton of production, but you look at the kind of the mid-range throws and what Louisville and UConn did, they were able to connect on 80% of their passes. Well, in comes Aiden O'Connell and the Boilermakers. Now, it wasn't against anyone of significance. It was Indiana State. So let's not get carried away about who it was against and all this other stuff. The passing game was not super sharp against Penn State, but let's also keep in mind, what did we say earlier in the show? Penn State's secondary is elite. So still look at it, 365 yards, pretty dang solid. If Aiden O'Connell can continue what he, doing what he did last week over into this week against a team that has been somewhat susceptible through the air, I think Purdue has a great chance of going on the road and getting it done. Not so fast, my friend. Let's talk about my team, all of my boys up there in upstate New York. It's been heard. For those that want to cherry pick information, Syracuse was one of the sleeper teams that we discussed earlier in the year as well. So fine. Go ahead and cherry pick information. We see you in the comments. Don't worry. We're on the orange this year. Okay, I like them. I think they're solid. What I like most is I know Sean Tucker's legit. I know he's the real deal. What I didn't know is that Garrett Schrader can become a competent passer. Well, look what we got here. They, right now, are not just beating you on the ground, which is to be expected. Schrader was a great runner last year. Tucker's been phenomenal for as long as I can remember. But I did not anticipate Garrett Schrader completing nearly 80% of his passes. I also didn't anticipate him being as accurate. If you look at the throws, the throws are on the money. Okay, so this offense is no longer one-dimensional. They can beat you in a lot of different ways. A lot of different ways. And that balance, I think, is really going to be difficult to defend. That, coupled with the fact they don't make mistakes, they don't turn the ball over. I think they should be able to generate enough pass rush to be able to create problems for Aiden O'Connell and a Purdue offensive line that will keep you off balance, but mostly because of smoke and mirrors. I like Syracuse in this game. I think they're a little bit more well-rounded. I think they're a little bit more balanced. And the team that can create balance and... By the way, shorten the game against a potent offense that can throw it all over the yard. Give me the balance all day long and twice on Saturday. I like Syracuse to get it done in a close one. Should be one of the best games of the weekend there in what? JMA Wireless Stadium, formerly known as the Carrier Dome.
1: Must be 21-plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details.
0: All right. Great talking about those matchups. Great talking about those games. A lot to look forward to this weekend. Coops, you got some bones to pick. What's the deal?
1: Well, I just wanted to make sure I got this right. So on this weekend in your 10 <laughs> games that you can't miss in big games, you have the Big 10 going 0-4 in those games this weekend. Is that going to hurt how the perception of the conference? No. Because they're toss up
0: games first and foremost. Uh, Like, are you, if Purdue loses to Syracuse, is that just a complete dent in the Big Ten's armor? No, yeah, that's what I mean, you're. Suggesting. I don't think Purdue's losing
1: to Syracuse. I'm just going to put that. Well, nobody. There too. Well, that's fine. Even if they don't, whatever. It doesn't matter. But I'm either way, more, I'm more talking about the Michigan State Washington game. This is a ranked Michigan State team going on the road. Right. I know Washington's tough, but difficult like if, road trip. Really tough road trip against a team.
0: And and the one thing that we haven't found out yet is we haven't quite found out if Michigan State's past defense has had all the issues ironed out of it. Now, as long as Michigan wins, as long as Ohio State wins you're still in a great spot as a league like Michigan state losing a road non-conference game is not going to just completely upend. Does anyone think, do you guys think Michigan state's going to win the league? I don't think that I think they're a nine and and two football team, which is pretty dang good by the way. Uh, But Penn state, them losing to Auburn, does anyone think Penn state's going to win the league? I personally don't feel that
1: right now. No, but you know how it goes towards the end of the year. Everybody says, oh, they only, you know, they only did this in the Big Ten and they lost their big non-conference matchup, you know, at Auburn or at Washington, which means they're not nearly as good and this team was better because they played more ranked teams. See, but to me, like, I'd rather, and this is
0: going to sound like totally backwards, uh, so I apologize in advance, but like when I look at it down the road, And let's say, you know, Michigan State beats Michigan um, and we're, let's say it's a crazy good game at the very end. Uh, Michigan State loses a game by three on the road at Washington in the non-conference and Washington, say, wins seven games. Um, To me, Michigan State would be ahead of Michigan because they beat them head to head, but they also actually challenge themselves in the non-conference. Like Michigan's non-conference schedule is deplorable. Like No disrespect to Hawaii or UConn or Colorado State, but it's embarrassingly bad. And you should be penalized like Baylor was in 2014 for playing substandard competition in the non-conference. Like Michigan State is scheduling a very difficult game, a very losable game, and deserves to be, regardless of the outcome, rewarded. Now, if they go get their doors blown off, it's going to be difficult to make that justification. But to me, I will never, ever, ever hold it against you Permanently, they can certainly get back in the good graces. Now, if they look awful and they lose, yeah, I'm going to jump to probably a fairly harsh criticism of them on Monday. But if they lose a close one on the road, if anything, I'm going to tip my cap to to Washington and say, "Hey, man, this is a pretty good performance by Michigan State. They just fell at the hands of a pretty good Pac-12 team that's clearly back playing good football." like Did anybody have issues with how Texas played last week? I know Texas isn't ranked. But did that loss hurt the big 12?
1: No, but um, if they come back and lose to UTSA or the rest of the big 12 teams all have two. Well, let me ask you this let me
0: ask you this. Do you think less of the SEC because of A&M's performance last week? No, you can't think less of the SEC. Exactly. So you're not going to think but you're not going to think less of the big 10 if
1: they have a average week. I'm not. I'm not. not, But I think we're in the minority when it comes to conference. You know how people view the conferences and their non-conference opponents, unless they win those games. Not every conference is the SEC and gets the benefit of the doubt. Well, well, I don't know if anyone gets the benefit of the doubt.
0: What I think is that you're going to naturally be viewed by what your super top teams do. So as long as Georgia and Alabama keep winning, the SEC will still be viewed in a positive light. Guess what? The Pac-12, everyone left them for dead. Yes, he looks pretty good. No one's talking about how average the Pac-12 is or how bad the Pac-12 might be or the perception of the Pac-12. Clemson looks pretty good in the ACC. I don't hear anyone, you know, carrying the banner. Look how much the ACC stinks. Like unfortunately, fair or unfair, you are judged by what your banner programs do. Michigan State is a banner program for sure. But as I mean, if they go on the road and lose a close one, I, as a football guy, know how difficult that win will be. You're traveling three time zones, you're playing at night, it's gonna be in a place that's gonna be chaotic. I've, by the way, called that Michigan State game when they went to Arizona State in 2018 and lost the game. It was awful. It was it was an awful, awful performance. They were flat, they were they were just not good that night whatsoever. So I've called that game. Like I remember it vividly. I know how hard it is to go West, and I know how hard it is to play in Seattle when that place believes that they can do something special. It will be bonkers on Saturday night. Here's the other thing. This is probably a fair question back to you or back to anyone else. If Michigan State goes on the road and gets that win, even if it's hideous, let's say they look awful, but still somehow find a way to win, are we going to be critical of Michigan State? Probably. Better not be. Because last I checked.
1: But but that's the thing. I mean, I know what Vegas is saying, but this is still like a top 15 program. And you're expected, because you're ranked that high, to go on the road and win these games. That's what the ranking justifies you for, isn't it?
0: Well, I think the ranking, as we've talked about many, many times, a preseason ranking needs to be shredded week in and week out. You're only as good as your most recent performance. And Michigan State has looked good through two games against really nobody. But either way, I am not going to come away from this game. And by the way, the day that Maryland or the day that Purdue or the day that, um, you know, Penn State, the day that those teams, you know, lead to me feeling worse about the Big Ten. Like, are we killing the Big Ten for Wisconsin losing to Washington State last week? I'm pretty sure we're not, right? Wanna know why? Because it's not an indicator of the health of the league. It's an indicator of a specific performance. One performance in which Michigan or in which Washington State took advantage of the mistakes and played great defense. It's as simple as that. I know we, not did, we killed, we killed the
1: health. Pac-12 because Utah went across country and lost in Gainesville in a close. Do we game. kill the
0: Pac-12? All I said is that it's going to be highly unlikely. I didn't I say I you and
1: I killed the Pac-12, but all I've heard from well, everybody we, else we is we the don't, Pac-12s out of the playoffs. All
0: we're responsible for is what's on this show. I don't okay. care what happens elsewhere.
1: It okay. doesn't matter to
0: me what happens elsewhere. And I think there is plenty of low-hanging fruit, but that's what people gravitate towards. It generates clicks, and people have a strong reaction to it. It's absurd the way the sport at times is covered. It makes me sick. That's why we have this show. All right? that's why we start this show.
1: So, hey, by the I'm way, did glad... you know Notre Dame's out of the playoffs? I heard that Notre Dame is out of the playoffs. Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure you know, cover all I, our bases. Oh, and two, but yes. you know, I thought maybe as a fan they had a chance, but okay.
0: Based on what I've seen so far, ten and zero is going to be tough down the stretch. But um, hey, anything's possible. So we'll see. Uh, it should be really, really fun this weekend. We hope you're as excited as we are. I love, I love as we're starting to get into the meat of it, starting to get out of the non-conference, starting to get in the conference, starting to get better matchups. Uh, a lot to, to look forward to here in the days and weeks to come. So we appreciate you being with us. Thanks for the conversation. I can promise you, we won't jump to sweeping conclusions about any specific league. We're going to evaluate it on a game-by-game basis. It's our promise to you, okay? I think it's very easy to condemn a league for the performance of a team. And that, to me, is dumb. You won't get it here. All right, For all of us here at Always College Football, we really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. It's been awesome this week. We look forward to coming back on Monday. We're going to share all of our takeaways. We're going to get down to it. Please like, rate, and subscribe. Hit us up in our email at alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at alwayscfb on Instagram and on Twitter. A lot that we're going to get to between now and then probably on the social media feeds. I don't control them. So hopefully there's good content on there. I know it is. I follow it. It's awesome. But <laughs> I won't be pushing it out. That's up to our, our good friend Jack and Jack and everybody else that helps us out behind the scenes. We very much appreciate all the interaction that we get from you. Like, rate, and subscribe. Whether it's on ESPN's YouTube, on the Apple Podcast, on Spotify, we'll be here for you every step of the way throughout the college football season. So You know it never sleeps here at Always College Football. For Mark Kubiak, for Jack Foster, I'm Greg McElroy. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.